Welcome to the Equipping You podcast, where our mission is to equip Alliance pastors and leaders to live spiritually healthy lives and lead healthy churches. Equipping You is a ministry of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org. Hey, 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 welcome back to Equipping You podcast. This is Season 4, Episode 6, and once again, we're coming to you today primarily from Colorado Springs, Colorado, home of 75 or so Christian organizations in terms of their headquarters being here in the city, places like Compassion, Focus on the Family, Navigators, etc., And I mention that today because uh, in many ways, we're a nation that is saturated with Christian organizations and churches, and yet we are, in my opinion, deficient in uh, our work of evangelism and reaching people for Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to address today, a very important topic. And uh, so I'm Terry, uh, Alliance Church Ministries Leader. And I'm Alan, multiplication leader in Eastern PA, among other things, as they remind me. And our trusty producer, please identify yourself, please. I'm Caitlin Guyverson, equipping you producer, digital media specialist for the Alliance, all of all of the digital things I do. You are a specialist. Yes, yes. Thank you, Alan. I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> So our guest today is uh, Rick Richardson. I'm uh, just getting to know Rick, read his book uh, recently. Well, I've read about 90% of his book. I'm, re- I'm bad at reading 90% of books and then having to like make myself go back and read that last uh, 10%. Uh, but uh, yeah, he uh, has written well. I was on a Zoom call with him recently, a man of passion, as you will find out. Yeah, Rick is a professor at Wheaton College involved in the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism. He's been involved with InterVarsity and always keeps connected to the uh, local church and what's happening in that arena as well. So really looking forward to uh, letting you hear what Rick has to share today. Get your pencil and paper ready, and uh, you're going to want to take some notes today as he speaks. So without further ado, grab yourself a Cherry Dr. Pepper. Doesn't Dr. Pepper already have cherry in it? That just confuses me. It's got to be one of the 23 flavors. It it has to be. But anyway, grab yourself a cherry Dr. Pepper. Sit back. Relax. Here we go. Hey, Equipping You friends. It's Caitlin here, and I want to tell you about something super special that we have launched here at Equipping You that's just for you, and we think you're really going to love it. If you're an avid Equipping You listener, an Equipping You live attender, or both, you need to join our Facebook group called Equipping You Community. We love that on the podcast and at Equipping You Live, we get to empower you in your ministries. But we believe that for you to really see the true transformation of your leadership that you want, applying what you learn in community is key. So pause this episode right now and head over to facebook.com slash groups slash equipping you community or you can go to equippingyou.com and scroll all the way to the bottom and click on equipping you community we can't wait to see you there so we're pleased to welcome rick richardson to equipping you podcast uh, today rick 
thanks for taking the time to uh, chat with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, great to be with you today, Terry. So we like to let our listeners get to know our interviewees a little bit. So um, share a bit of your background, if you don't mind, Rick, uh, how you came to faith in Christ and what kind of ministry assignments you've had over the years. Well, I don't recommend this as an evangelism uh, approach, but uh, my ninth grade friend in high school uh, played a trick on me. He got me to come along on a beach uh, event, a beach adventure uh, with a, uh, you know, a number of us high schoolers. And, uh, you know, said it's going to be a lot of sun. We're going to have a lot of fun. There'll be girls. You know, I, he, he gave me the whole pitch. And when I got out there, I found out that actually the price of going was that every night we got to listen to music and preachers uh, sharing the gospel. And so uh, about, about Tuesday or Wednesday of the week, I finally came to terms with that. And, and on Thursday night, Jay Kessler, uh, mm. formerly... Uh, uh, youth yeah. for Christ, and and uh, then President of Taylor uh, preached the gospel, and I I knew it would be costly with my parents because they were not uh, uh, people of faith at that time in their lives, and they kind of looked down on evangelicals. But I I gave my life to Christ, and uh, and that next day my group leader then uh, fooled me into uh, sharing my testimony. I, I, he said, "Hey Rick, I heard something happened to you last night," and uh, and he he made me share it with about 200 people that he gathered. And I was incoherent. I didn't know what had happened. I, you know, I tried to do my best. Uh, but it did teach me right from the beginning that once you commit to Christ, you're a witness about what God has done in your life. And so, uh, so that's how I kind of snuck into the kingdom. Mm, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then was discipled, actually, by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, uh, when I started college. Uh, actually, we went to NIAC and the Alliance uh, Seminary for our planning camps and for teaching and uh, had a connection there at that time in college. And uh, uh, so that's that's kind of my story of coming to Christ. Uh, I spent a lot of years in campus ministry because I'd gotten discipled uh, uh, for Christ in campus ministry. I wanted to give that to other people. Uh, so I spent a lot of time ultimately becoming the national coordinator for evangelism with InterVarsity. Uh, and then went into church ministry and tried to bring that concern and vision for witness uh, uh, into the church. Uh, and then after doing that for some years, uh, I became a professor and uh, at Wheaton College, uh, which is what I do now. And I think the themes of my, my journey with Christ, the big three themes have been evangelism, helping the church kind of engage in reaching the lost, uh, then multi-ethnic ministry, have a huge heart for racial justice and reconciliation, and uh, and finally, actually, prayer and healing. Uh, and and the theme in each of those is going into the tough places and seeing the light shatter the darkness. So that's uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, we appreciate so you, that. Yeah, so you went to the beach, and you're from the east. Did you go to Harvey Cedars? Uh, yeah, I did, uh, but. Uh, the beach that, uh, that actually the, the kind of the East, uh, it was uh, Youth for Christ that I was mainly connected to. And uh, we went to Ocean City. That's where I came to Christ. But yeah, I have been to, uh, I, I have been to Harvey Cedars. Uh, Caitlin will appreciate that. She's, a, she's our Jersey girl producer. I grew up 20 minutes from Ocean City. That's my beach. Woo! Oh, the Caitlin Guyberson Beach. They should call it that. They should. Yes. 
Well, hey, Rick, we are, you know, have you on here because of the book that you've written uh, recently. And, uh, you know, <laughs> as my as my co-host knows so well, you probably shouldn't uh, write a book without a compelling call from the Lord to do so. So what was burning in your soul that caused you to write uh, You Found Me? Yeah, yeah, I really agree with you. Unless there's something burning in your soul, you don't write a book just because you have a few ideas. You got to really have a passion and, and a call. And and I would say this book, You Found Me, was the hardest book for me to write. Uh, I, you know, I've written a few others, and uh, but this just took a lot out of me. But but I was I was passionate about sticking with it and do research because I really have a sense of optimism about the hope for the next generation, for, for millennials, for, for Gen Z. Um, I, in my personal life, have experienced a lot of spiritual interest in, in people that the research community calls nuns. Uh, those people who, you know, on surveys say, what's your religious preference? And they say none. And, uh, I, you know, I want to reach people like I was reached. And, and we are always and constantly giving up on people. We, we start to say, oh, America has fallen over the cliff. It's secularizing. Uh, there's no chance anymore for the church. We just better circle the wagons and, and protect our kids. And uh, I, I just think that's an attitude that leads to the, uh, you know, the, the kind of halt of the mission of God uh, in our country. And so I have a lot of hope for the mission uh, of the church and a lot of love for that. And I believe there's a lot more opportunity and receptivity than, uh, than we think. And, uh, but at the same time, I've been influenced by all the negative statistics. So I was surprised at what I found. So let's uh, unpack that a little bit, Rick. Some, some, uh, some have been predicting the downfall of the evangelical church in America uh, but you have a more hopeful perspective, as you were just beginning to talk about. So tell us uh, about some of your research that has led you to some more optimistic conclusions. Yeah, I, I, you know, the, I am a research geek. Uh, I do take seriously the findings we have. I, you know, some of my findings also, uh, uh, you know, pointed in the same direction in terms of the, the rise of the nuns, how many people today are, are not expressing a religious preference. And, and basically, the big issue in our society is people are losing trust in many of our institutions. And so there are not as many people as there used to be who want to identify with a particular religious institution. Uh, they might be spiritual, they might even pray to God, they might even actually love Christ, but they've lost their heart for institutional identifications. And so that's a big part of what's going on in our society. But that's not the same thing as to say people are losing spiritual interest and are no longer receptive to Jesus. And, and I found a lot of evidence that people are actually still very receptive. Uh, for instance, uh, I, when, in our survey, we asked uh, people, uh, we, we surveyed 2,000 unchurched people from all across the country, every region of the country, every major city of the country, every major ethnic group. And, uh, and in our surveys, here's a few findings that made me say, hey, we're overreading the negativity toward the church. So here was one finding, for instance, uh, unchurched people. 
uh, who say that the church is good for society. Uh, 42% told us, yeah, the church is good for society. Guess how many, what percent said the church is harmful to society? Only 6%. So 42% good for society, 6% the church is harmful to society. Well, that's not what we would expect if we were making up the stats in our head. Uh, Here's another one that really surprised us. About 80% of the unchurched say, if my friend feels like their faith is important to them, I don't mind them talking about it with me. 80%, four out of five, said, hey, it's okay if my unchurched friends talk about their faith, if it's important to them, that's okay with me. And only 20%, one out of five, said, yeah, I, I really don't appreciate that. Here was a real shocker for, for us. Uh, and yet, this has been true over a long period of time. Unchurched people said an invitation from a friend or family member would be effective in getting me to, a, to visit a church. The percentage was 50%. One out of two unchurched people tell us, if a friend invites me to church, that would be effective in getting me there. So those are just three. We had had a lot of statistics that said, hey, people are much more open than we think. Not to the institutional approach, but to the personal approach. Yeah, personal makes a difference for sure. And And we hear the enthusiasm in your voice. Uh, yet at the same time, I know that you would readily admit that when it comes to evangelism, the church is facing challenges and shortcomings. What are some key elements that might be keeping churches from being evangelistically engaged and effective at this time? Yeah, you know, uh, one of the one of the statistics that we discovered, one of the questions we asked, and we asked this of a thousand churches across the country. Um, And we found that 60% of the churches, these are Protestant churches in America, are plateaued or declining, and and 30% are growing primarily through transfer growth. Only 10% of the churches in America are growing primarily through conversions. So what that means uh, is that 90% of the churches in America are playing a zero-sum game. They're just trading around people. Some are plateaued. They're holding on. Some are losing members, and they're losing members to the churches that are growing by gaining those members. That's 90% of the church in America. But 10% of the church in America has cracked the code, and they're growing primarily by conversion. And what was fascinating about that was it didn't matter what size you were. It didn't matter what model of church you use. It wasn't the seeker-oriented churches that were growing by conversion or or just the Bible-preaching churches. Every kind of church and every size church had representatives who were what we call conversion communities, growing primarily through conversion. So, that means that 90% of the churches in America, to answer your question, are, are uh, ineffective right now 
largely ineffective at evangelism and conversion growth. Why are they ineffective? You know, there's a number of factors. One of the big ones we found is most of those churches don't believe people are receptive. They don't believe there's a harvest out there. They've been convinced by the statistics to just say, okay, I guess, you know, people just don't want to hear about Jesus. And so even if they have a rhetoric that values evangelism, they have a pessimism about the likelihood of actually reaching real people. So we actually call that the chicken little syndrome in the book. Uh, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the nuns are rising, the, the millennials are leaving. And we just look at that pessimistic data we've gotten, and then we just start to lose hope. And, and a lot of churches lose hope because they haven't found a way to be effective. Here was the other thing as we've worked with pastors is actually pastors would love a way forward. They value this. They just don't know how to crack the code, move forward, and trust and believe that there's a harvest for their church. That is good stuff. That's the kind of stuff we need to hear. I guess if you really believe people won't be receptive, then I guess you won't share. (laughs) You won't. And, and, you know, part of it is, uh, you know, we we struggle to know how to tap into the spiritual interest because sometimes our scripts and our ways we've been taught to share our faith aren't working as well as they used to. Um, But what we found is that churches that believe there's a harvest are finding ways to share their faith and they're growing through conversion. And, you know, we could also talk about the polarization, the political polarization in the country. Uh, We can talk about COVID-19. That's that's led to some challenges. Uh, But those are more immediate and present. And and we could spend the rest of the time talking about those. But everybody's talking about those. So maybe we won't we won't spend lots of time there on this interview. Yeah, unfortunately, the church was struggling with evangelism before any of those uh, things. Exactly so right. exactly so you, right. you used the phrase a conversion community to define churches that are getting it done in evangelism and disciple making. So uh, what criteria does a church have to meet to be considered a co- conversion community? And I think I'm hearing you say that 10% of churches would qualify as, as conversion communities. That, that's right. It's, it's 10%. And this was in our survey nationally of a uh, thousand churches and about 10% of them met this criteria. Uh, here are the, the kind of marks of a conversion community. Uh, one is that changed lives are common in such churches. And storytelling about changed lives is one of the main modes of communication and of life together for those churches. They just tell stories about lives changing. They're excited about that. So that's one mark. A second mark is evangelism uh, is, is locked on for the long haul as one of the top three or four priorities for the church. It never goes away. It never slips to number 10 or number or 15. What we found, if it's not one of your top three, it very easily becomes number 25 or 30. And if you don't prioritize evangelism, let's face it, this is helping people come out of the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom, into the kingdom of light. It's not something Satan wants to see happen. That's right. And uh, 
And so it's a, an uphill battle to keep evangelism in the center of our ministry, but the conversion communities have it there. And then the third is that it's, you have a 10% conversion rate, and, and we didn't actually just look at conversions because you could produce a lot of hands raised just by, you know, certain strategies. We actually counted conversions retained, which is people who came to Christ and stuck and started being discipled, becoming yeah. disciples. That's what mattered to us in our research. And, and, and what we found is that actually conversion communities have about 10% of their attendance are new believers every year. And that's a great vision for every one of our churches. If you've got 100 people, then you have 10 people who are attending who are new believers this year. If you've got 1,000 people attending, you have 100 people that are new believers this year. And, uh, and churches are seeing that. But boy, we got to lift our vision and recapture that call to become conversion communities. So you talk about uh, having a conversion community formula. Unpack that for us, what you mean. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, that was fun because it was research-driven. It kind of came out of our research and uh, out of actually... Uh, we surveyed 4,500 Protestant churches, and then we identified a top 10% out of the churches that we, uh, that we surveyed, and we, we interviewed the pastors and previously unchurched people who had come to Christ. So that's how we found out the factors, the predictive factors for conversion communities. Uh, and so our equation is kind of simple. MI plus ML plus MC equals CC. Now, that didn't make any sense, right? Uh, those are initial. But, uh, but MI is missional imagination. That's what I talked about in terms of having a love for Jesus' mission, and just that's a top priority for your church. But it's also believing there's a harvest, having an imagination that your church could become one of these conversion communities. Uh, believing that, you know, I, I had a, well, I was part of helping InterVarsity become a conversion movement. Uh, we went from about a 4% conversion ratio to about a, uh, about an 11% conversion ratio over an, over a number of years. And uh, we started with a self image that said, Hey, we suck at evangelism. And a lot of movement <laughs> churches feel that way. And we began to have missional imagination that no, God could make us a conversion movement. And, uh, and, and God did. Uh, so MI is missional imagination. ML is missional leaders. The DNA of our churches is determined by the DNA of our leaders. And if our leaders love sharing their faith and being a witness and pass that on to their people, then you begin to really have a conversion community. So that's ML, missional leaders. MC is missional congregation. What we found is there were congregations also had some characteristics. Here's one of the top. These congregations cared both about compassion and justice ministry, and they cared about evangelism. And it was when the two were brought together that you really saw people come to Christ. So that's MC, a missional congregation. And then CC, uh, it, it all adds up to becoming a conversion community. And what was fun is that these, uh, these characteristics 
came out of research. These are the characteristics that, that these were true of churches across the country, every denomination, including Christian and Missionary Alliance and, and every other denomination. Every size church, you know, a lot of our churches are 50, 100, 200, 250, a lot of the churches in our country. And we found a ton of them in our research that were conversion communities. So it doesn't matter the size or style or model that you use. You can have these things, missional imagination, missional leaders, and a missional congregation. You can have those characteristics as God leads you and empowers you and become a, you can become a conversion community. So, Rick, uh, a lot of great research went into this book, and it's a great book, by the way. I recommend that people read it. From, from your research, you determined that hospitality is the key trait for a church to possess if it's to become a conversion community. Uh, can, you, can you define what you mean by hospitality and what this trait looks like practically in the local church? Yeah, this was a, another fun part. And again, I, I didn't know that, that this is what we defined. Uh, but we, again, we, we, we surveyed 4,500 churches. Uh, we interviewed the top, uh, we interviewed about 60 churches, the top 60, uh, the pastors of them and previously unchurched people. And, uh, and we found 10 predictive factors. And number one, just like you said, is hospitality. Number one. Now, uh, what I mean by hospitality is our ability as a church to welcome people not like us into our community. So if, if, you, if you have a, a, a church, then you're discipling believers, but you're wanting to reach unbelievers. So you're actually wanting to welcome people in who are different than you are. They don't have your language. They don't have your worldview. They don't yet have a commitment to Jesus as, as you're all, you know, as they're all in all. They're different than you are. And when you look at scripture, remember Jesus, he kept saying, you know, when, you, when you're with people who are like you and believe what you believe and you serve them and they serve you, what is that to you? Don't the Gentiles do the same thing? It's when we go above and beyond and create space for and uh, hospitable intention toward people that are different than we are. And so that's what we found in churches. It wasn't that they were, quote unquote, seeker targeted churches or, again, or Bible preaching churches. It wasn't that characteristic. You could have hospitality in every one of those kinds of churches. And hospitality is marked by what do people experience when they come? You know, what do they experience when they visit you online? Do you have a welcome mat out for unbelievers? on your internet, your internet presence, that's the new front door for churches. Is there a welcome mat for people who don't believe yet? When they park, when they come into your gathering, uh, do they feel like, oh, these people expected me to show up, even though I don't necessarily believe everything they do yet? Did they make allowance for me? In the sermon, did they address me and my situation? You know, it's not that our sermons are aimed at unbelievers. It's that our sermons practice hospitality toward unbelievers. 
Make space for them. Address them. Let them know, we wanted you here. We're so glad you're here. This is wonderful. And listen, here's a passage, and you might not be a believer in Jesus, but this is how it might uh, apply to you. All all different things we do. We had one church where uh, a woman came in with a crying child who uh, had a disability. and, uh, and And again, small church. And the woman greeter said, oh, welcome, and paid a lot of attention to the child. The child quieted down. After a while of building trust, the woman said, hey, if you want to sit in the back row, you can still uh, hear what's happening with your, with your child, but I, I'd like to just play a game here in the back with, with your child, if that'd be okay. And, and, and she did, and the child was happy for the whole service. You can imagine this woman who didn't yet believe in Jesus you know, she felt Jesus, what Jesus was about by the love this, this woman at a small church showed to her kid who, who was, uh, you know, had a disability. So hospitality was the top predictive factor. And that's some of what it looked like. Very helpful. Yeah, well, walk through some of those other factors for us. We'd love to hear those. Yeah, so, you know, to break them down a little bit in terms of the, you know, the missional leader factors and the missional community factors. Uh, uh, here, here was uh, one that, that I think pastors who are listening, I think a lot of pastors listen to the podcast. And yep. uh, here's, here was the, uh, you know, a major predictive factor for them. It says the leader blocks out time, the, the lead pastor blocks out time in the schedule to reach out intentionally every week outside church activities. That, that last phrase is a really critical part of the phrase. They don't just reach out through their church activities, their funerals and their baptisms and people who attend the service and premarital counseling through the church. They block out time, intentionality, outside church activities in their neighborhood, their health club, their kids' soccer teams, wherever it is. And what we call that in our cohorts, we help pastors do this, is we call it modeling outreach that your people can imitate. Your people can't imitate you preaching the gospel on a Sunday. Uh, your people can't imitate you lead many of them, uh, you know, you leading a funeral or a baptism service. But if you tell a story about your neighbor or your health club situation or a coffee shop you were in, every one of them can imitate that. And that was one of the predictive factors. So uh, that, I, I, I landed on that one. I won't, you know, I won't talk so much about the others and because, uh, uh, you know, we don't have that kind of time. But, but, exactly. uh, but at the same time, you know, that, this, that's really especially ac- applicable to, you, you know, pastors who are listening to the podcast. So, Very helpful, Rick. Uh, I, I, yeah. Actually, another one, this was really fascinating, is there are some pastors who do reach out and they become evangelism heroes to their church. And their church sits back and claps and goes, yay, you go, pastor. We're so <laughs> glad you're with the people. What was fascinating is for these churches, because that that pastor doing it was the, the, like the 10th, uh, 10th in line and about halfway down the list. Here's the key. The pastors hear stories that their people are reaching out and their people are telling stories. What's even more important than the pastor modeling evangelism 
is that he's actually learned how to release his people or her people into evangelism. And uh, that's the trick. Uh, there are a lot of pastors who reach out a lot and tell great stories and everybody's really excited and puts them on a pedestal, but they start to say, oh, that's the professional's work. Yeah. And then when you ask them, they'll say, oh, my gift is discipleship or I do small groups. You got to break that dichotomizing. You got to punch it in the face. There is no such thing as discipleship without witness. No such thing as discipleship without witness. Yeah. And there is no such thing as witness without discipleship. That Those things are so interwoven. And when your people start to tell you, oh, that's not my gift, man, you got to, you know, you don't make shame them or anything, but you got to say, wow, how did we get to a definition of discipleship that didn't include witness? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, you can't see that in Jesus' life where he dichotomized. They were all wrapped up together. So, anyway, those are two of them. I, I don't know if we have time for any more. <laughs> we, we better move along, but I wish you'd get passionate about something, Rick. You're a little laid back. <laughs> I, quiet. Know, I know. I just, I know it. So, you guys are, uh, yeah, you, you is, know, the Billy Graham Center is working with churches to, to see their evangelistic engagement and effectiveness uh, increase. Uh, you're, you're starting to do that. So tell, tell us how you're doing that and some of the outcomes that you're seeing. Yeah, that, that, so that's been super fun. We, seven, eight years ago, I guess, we started uh, bringing lead pastors into cohorts. And, uh, what you know, it'll be six to ten pastors who come together. And, and we actually make a two-year journey together. And the, and the reason it's two years is because we're not just after, you know, you could help. We're actually after you seeing culture change in your church. We want to see every one of the churches we work with become conversion communities. And uh, so we've now worked with about uh, 350 pastors of churches. We start with the senior pastor because only person in the church about culture change. Um, but we also have that pastor bring along another leader. Because the pastor can't do it all. Uh, and, and so we have those two people walk through the cohort for two years. Culture change takes four to five years. You can't do it in a shorter time. But in two years, we get you to the tipping point. And uh, so it's been so fun. I, I think of uh, Constance uh, Evangelical Free Church and, uh, you know, in Minnesota. And we've actually had some Christian and Missionary Alliance churches involved uh, in some of our cohorts. And, uh, you know, Constance was a church that uh, has about 1,500 members. So that's a larger church. And, uh, but they, they felt like they weren't, they didn't do very well at evangelism. You know, it was like what we had to face. We suck at evangelism. Uh, in university. And, uh, but Constance, uh, about four years ago, before they started the cohort, uh, they saw about 30 or 40 people come to Christ. So that's nowhere near the 10%. Uh, this last year, and you got to listen to this, this has really been powerful to watch. Uh, this church has seen nearly 300 people come to Christ. And that's about a 20% conversion rate. That's fantastic. Can you imagine going from 30, 30 to 300 wow. over a four-year period? So yeah. it's been so fun to watch churches change. Well, 
uh, Rick, you're doing a great service for the church uh, through your research and work in the whole area of evangelism. And I just want to say how much we appreciate that and look forward to ways that the Alliance uh, can continue to partner uh, with you in this effort. And uh, thanks for taking time out today to uh, join us on the podcast. Uh, You've uh, given our pastors and leaders a lot to chew on and think about and act on. So thanks a lot. Uh, We appreciate it. Yeah, love love it. I love your leadership too. So just so appreciate being with you. Thank you. All right. We'll see you again soon, my brother. Well, Alan and Caitlin, I love the passion of uh, Rick Richardson and uh, the research he's done and the things that have flown out, uh, flow out of that research that are helpful to uh, local church leaders as they seek to be more evangelistically uh, fruitful. What you, uh, what really connected with your heart, Alan, in this uh, session? Oh, wow. I wouldn't even, it's hard to even know where to start, but I, I think a couple things that I appreciate is that his constant use of the word conversion. I think in today's world, people tend to be resistant to using that word. But, you know, people are converting from living their own life to following Christ. And I, I like that he's not hesitant to call us to that. Uh, I like that he was so straightforward uh, about, as he said, punching in the face. Whoa. So I love that. And, you know, he, he likes to using words that even people kind of, cringe at a little bit. He used the, you know, the, the idea of a formula for a conversion community. And yet I thought that was disarming as well, because obviously it wasn't formulaic, even though it's, he wrote it as a formula. It's very personal and revolves around people. And my goodness, I feel challenged and um, humbled and ready to roll after that. I, this is, I want this to be markings of our churches and I'm glad that he wants to be helpful to the Alliance. Yeah, so we're uh, building a relationship with the Billy Graham Evangelism Center around these evangelism cohorts and hope to launch a couple of those uh, pilot cohorts in the next uh, year or so, perhaps one English-speaking, one Spanish-speaking. And uh, anybody out there that's interested in that, contact your district superintendent and uh, let him let us know. But uh, we want to see the uh, number of professions of faith and baptisms increase in the Christian and Missionary Alliance as God gives us opportunity to uh, reach lost people for Him. So valuable stuff. Read that book, Uh, You Found Me. Pass this uh, episode along to your friends and enemies. And uh, we will uh, uh, all benefit from it, I believe. Okay. Great one to share. So text it, post it, do whatever you got to do. Pass it around. Indeed. So, been great having you with us for this episode. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep the faith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.